Welcome to MCS Pentecast, Pentecostal podcast about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecasts are produced by Masters College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Van Johnson, Dean of Masters Pentecostal Seminary. This is Peter Newman, Assistant Dean of Masters Pentecostal College. This podcast is part two of three of a live presentation given by Dr. Van Johnson to a group of pastors at Royal View Pentecostal Church in London, Ontario on February 21, 2013. The topic, Important Biblical Issues in the Church Today. New Testament scholars have been suggesting for a while now that we may not be reading the Bible for all it's worth. Dr. Johnson looks at two methods for reading the Bible well. In this Pentecost, part two, he addresses reading the Bible as literature. Okay, so let's talk about something that is very exciting in terms of New Testament studies, which is now taking the individual portions of the New Testament and saying, what type of literature is this? Uh, In the days when New Testament scholars were mining down and looking for sources and looking at the oral stage, they weren't paying much attention to to the final piece of literature that that was in front of them. But in the last 20, 30 years, one of the dramatic turns in New Testament studies has been to say, okay, now that we're looking at the composition itself again, rather than what preceded it, okay, what kind kind of pieces of literature uh, are these? Uh, This goes on in Old Testament studies, too. Uh, I want to focus on the Gospels because I think there's something there that will uh, re-energize anyone's preaching that takes this seriously. And I'm still trying to learn how to to get a hold of this. But let me just mention the one that I'm not really going to mention, which is the most misunderstood genre or literary category in the New Testament. And that is Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. The potential for the book of Revelation to seize our culture today is powerful, but we don't know what to do with it because we don't understand the type of literature it is. It is not a code book with details lying under the surface where you can build charts from. It's a completely different type of literature. And I'm thinking, if I am running a young adults group and I wanted to do something creative with them. I would say, let's, let's read Revelation a couple times. Let's read it in small groups, and then let's talk about it together. And then let's imagine how we would depict the coming of the kingdom and the pushing back of evil through, through media and through rap and through... The power of the book of Revelation has been neutered by reading it, by reading it the wrong way. But that's not what I want to talk about. Let's, let's talk about the, the Gospels, okay? So in terms of genre analysis, one of the exciting things that's happened with the Gospels now is understanding that Gospels are not a modern piece of literature, but ancient. They are not modern biography. They are ancient biography. So here here my handout is is a little bit more detailed. So if if you're reading reading biblical scholars today, they will talk about the Gospels being part of a Greco-Roman literary category called ancient bioi or ancient biography. And I, I think this is significant enough that I've given you some characteristics, five characteristics of ancient biography. But let me say as we start into this, ancient biography tended to be of unusual individuals, emperors, 
philosophers, generals, only the elite. And the ancient biographer would choose someone who that biographer felt should be a model to the people. In other words, there was no idea, let's write about an individual, because people should just know. Fascinating. Ancient biography was written to influence the reader so that they would be prone to want to be like the one that they were reading about. So whenever anybody says to you, you know, the Gospels are, well, you know, can't really say they're objective. Well, ancient biography wasn't objective. And nor the Gospels. This is not a disinterested view of Jesus where, you know, the pros and cons. These, these are written so that you might believe. Well, that's what ancient biography was. And so when the gospel writers choose this genre or literary category, they are, they are choosing the appropriate category because Jesus is the singular most important person that anybody might want to, to read about. Oh, this, and, and the other thing, I don't know whether this is on your handout or not, but just bear in mind, just bear in mind that all of the gospels, as well as all the letters of Paul, as well as the book of Revelation, they were written down to be heard all the New Testament books were written down with the idea that they would be performed orally, that they would be heard. Luke never imagined this and that everybody would have a copy and privately individuals would do their own Bible study. The Word of God was to be heard in communities of faith and discussed, and prayed about, and acted upon. So, so, here we go. When you think about ancient biography, then notice, notice that Jesus comes to us in four narratives. Four narratives. What we know about Jesus comes in four narratives. There's a very helpful distinction being made, uh, because narrative can suggest to some people a fabrication. There's a very uh, important distinction being made by careful biblical scholars between the story of Jesus and the narrative. The story of Jesus is what happened. The narrative is how somebody tells it. So what you have in the Gospels then is one story told four different ways. Four different narratives. Christianity is absolutely unique amongst major religions in not just giving one account of the founder. One official account, so no questions would be asked. Isn't it amazing that the early church gave us four? Didn't they know that they read differently? Well, of course they did. They gave us four narratives about one Jesus. One gospel, four, four narratives. Okay? So, when you, are, when you are reading ancient biography, when you are talking to your people about what the Gospels are, here are five things that you should know about them. First of all, the presumption was that when you wrote an ancient biography, you were not fabricating events, you were not making it up. You might be creative in the way you told the story, but you were expected to be reflecting a person who lived and what they said and what they did. Of course, there's a lot of skepticism about the Gospels. And some of it has come from biblical scholars who were skeptical about the Gospels. But if you take this genre seriously, you wrote a biography because there was somebody who lived whose existence was significant. 
and you were expected to be faithful to what that individual said and did, though you were given some creative license because you had to hold the attention of people who were only listening. Most people are illiterate in the first century. All of, the, all of the biblical books were being written to be read out loud, to hold the attention of people who could only listen. That's why so much of the Bible is story. So the presumption behind ancient biography is that this is actually about someone. Secondly, when you are reading a narrative, ancient narrative, ancient bioi, of course, you do what you would do when you read any novel. You start at the beginning and you go through it scene by scene until you get to the end. It's amazing then if that's true. And when you think about it, what else could possibly be true? Particularly if you had to listen to it, you're forced to hear it from the beginning to the end. That we don't think about the text that way. We don't read it that way, nor do we preach it that way. This is one of the more fascinating innovations in New Testament studies. I wasn't taught this at seminary. This was just starting to break in. All my training was comparing Matthew and Mark and Luke to each other and digging down and going vertical. And... But this was so freeing. See? I remember the first course was at, my, at the doctoral level where uh, the uh, Roman Catholic scholar said, I want you to read the Gospel of Matthew through twice. Notice the story. There's a story here. Read it from beginning to end. Never done that before. I had done what many of you do. You a little bit of Mark, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of Leviticus, a little bit of Proverbs. You know, and so that's, so, you know, we read through the Bible in ways that the biblical writers <laughs> never <laughs> imagined, right? And so, and so even when we come to gospel, which is so clearly a story, and we take an incident, an episode of Jesus, out, out of the whole story, and we preach on it as if it's an independent bit. Well, of course, that's the way we learn to do it. So we think nothing of it. But try that. Try that with. Uh, try that with a. Pretend you're you're, you're being asked to do a, a talk on episode seven of Downtown Abbey or or the the, the miniseries twenty four, which is the first miniseries that that caught my attention. Anybody who can save the world within twenty four hours, that's good. I can afford twenty four hours for the salvation of the whole world. I can give that. Well, imagine imagine to a group of people who knew nothing about Jack Bauer and his tendencies and what the issue is. Imagine if I'm handed DVD, DVD episode number eight. And of all the different scenes between the commercials, I take a pericope uh, halfway through eight and I pull that story out without any, without any awareness on my own. This is part of a larger story. Trying to explain it to people without the storyline. Of course, none of us would do that because that episode only makes sense in light of what's preceded and where it's going. Once that hits you in your gospel preaching, it opens everything up. It doesn't mean every time you open Luke, you try and preach the whole thing. But you start preaching that portion of Luke in light of the fact that not only there's a grand narrative, but there's a narrative in here too. I'll give you an example of how this works uh, in a moment from um, Mark chapter 8. Thirdly, another characteristic of ancient bioi is that you watch for some statement of purpose. Typically, in, in narrative, there is some idea at the beginning where the whole story is going, where it's moving. I said that's the case with the biblical narrative as a whole, certainly the case with 
any of the, the narratives. Where is the statement of God's purpose or Jesus' statement of what he came to do? Watch for it at the beginning and then watch the way that plays out. Number four, in ancient narrative, sequence was very important. In other words, you wouldn't just dive in and start reading anywhere. You'd read it like any book. You'd start at the beginning because you want to make sense of what comes later. Sequence is extremely important. And I think I put it in your outline here. In ancient biography, the, the storyteller was, was under no pressure to tell everything in the exact order in which it happened. Well, probably no one memorized the order in which everything happened, for starters. But the ancient biographer's task was not to give you a chronological, you know, he said this just before he did that. They're giving some license. Because they're not trying to tell you the whole story of Jesus. They're trying to tell you enough of the story of Jesus so you'll be confronted by him. And there's some creativity with the gospel writers. Never get upset if Luke has changed the order of some of the events slightly. No one in the first century was. They're storytellers. It's not that they're making it up, but they feel free to put certain events side by side because this event will make more sense if you've preceded it by these. And once you start seeing that in your preaching, it gets harder and harder to preach because you're thinking, yeah, but they need to know about this and know about that. But it just opens the whole text up to you, you see. And then when you're reading uh, the Gospels for yourself, watch for what the writer is telling you is significant by the kind of aspects of Jesus' life or his teaching or the scenes that keep getting repeated. For an oral audience, what will stick is what keeps getting repeated, right? And watch the duration. Uh, you, you soon get on to Luke in Ephesus that he's interested in certain things and not others. When you see how quickly he deals with some major events and then quickly moves on to something else. His description of Jesus being baptized in the water. When others, was being, when others were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And then he talks about the Spirit coming down, coming up out of the water. It's in Matthew that you have the debate, you know, who should be baptizing whom, right? Or the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus. Right? Jesus is, Jesus is, boy, the language is so simple. And before you know it, you're out in the field with a bunch of shepherds. Why are we out in the field with a bunch of shepherds? Let's hear some more about the manger and what's going on. What did, what did Joseph think? What did Mary think? Before you know it, you're out in the field with shepherds. Watch, watch what these storytellers choose to take some time. Okay. okay, so an example of how this has helped me understand a very confusing passage is Mark chapter 8, and it is the miracle of... Uh, do, you, do you still carry Bibles? Do you, have, do you, do you bring those? Uh, I word of I hit on my iPad or my phone. Go ahead. You, you, you can uh, just don't check your messages for a minute. Uh, they'll, they'll wait. Here is the one story where it doesn't seem like Jesus is able to heal somebody in one shot, but has to pray twice. The healing of the blind man at Beth, Bethsaida, you know, it uh, pulls the man aside, spits on the man's eyes. We're in verse 22, chapter 8. Do you see anything? Man says, well, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Jesus once more puts his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. I remember in our little Pentecostal church in Verdun, uh, now a suburb of, of Metro Montreal. 
an evangelist from the States. I think he was a Texan. And because his voice boomed and because he was loud and because he gestured a lot, when he said this, I wanted to believe it. He said, he said now tonight when we pray for the sick, some of you weren't healed last night, but even Jesus had to pray more than once for some people. And he meant this text. As if Jesus' prayer wasn't always effective the first time around, so you should come again, because even Jesus had this issue. And I'm thinking there, and I, because of his voice and his booming style, and he's in our church, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, even Jesus, and I'm thinking, isn't, isn't that a bit strange? And of course, uh, unless I'm, I'm missing a story that I'm... I think this is the only time where you have Jesus performing a miracle in two stages. If you pull this out... It's very, it's very confusing, but if you leave it in the story, it makes perfect sense why Jesus has to deal with that man's eyes in two stages. Because the issue coming up to Mark chapter 8 is the identity of Jesus, who he is. And you'll notice the next little story here is the focal point of the early part of the narrative of Mark, which is Peter's confession as to who Jesus is. Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? What, what options are out there? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But now he asks them. And this has been so much the issue in the first couple chapters, people saying, who is this? Who is this? Right? For who this one is, is the whole point of this narrative, this ancient bioi. So this is a dramatic scene. And Peter gets the name right. You are the Christ, Messiah. And then Jesus says, now don't tell anybody. And as the narrative moves on, it becomes clear why. Because they wouldn't have known what to say about Messiah because they didn't understand this Messiah. And Mark has a wonderful way of making this perfectly clear to us. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So to uh, get to the point of this episode, the reason that Mark has put the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida just before this to show us that Jesus had to deal with the sight of this man in two stages. It illustrates the issue he was now going to have with his disciples. That they saw clearly enough to know that he was Messiah. They got the name right, but they didn't have a clue what that meant. And so Jesus' ongoing work with constantly talking to them about what they don't see yet, what they don't yet understand, his suffering and his death. So you start reading these as narratives, and you're saying, well, Dr. Van, you're saying, Van, I'm not really, we're not really sure of all that. I mean, that's, yeah, that's interesting. But when you read it as a story, how else would they have heard it? Because eyes, of course, is, eyes being open is, is, is the, meta, the great metaphor for understanding. And isn't it interesting, after this two-part work with this blind man, so begins Jesus' two-part work with his disciples. They see him, but still, but still not, not, clearly, not clearly enough. Okay, so there's, there's some uh, good books there in the bibliography on this, on this section. The one that I would recommend, there's, uh, the one in particular is the book by Burridge, What Are the Gospels? 
Uh, just very, very well done. Burridge, Richard Burridge. A comparison with Greco-Roman biographies. Uh, that book by Green, Joel Green, Hearing the New Testament, notice that again, Hearing the New Testament, reflecting the idea that these books were written to be read out loud to be heard, is also very good, but a little bit more technical. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecasts, podcasts produced by Master's College and Seminary. MCS Pentecasts are available online at mcs.edu and also through iTunes Podcasts. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at both undergrad and graduate levels. For more information on graduate courses offered through Master's Pentecostal Seminary in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at Master's Pentecostal Bible College in Peterborough, Canada, please visit mcs.edu.